You're listening to Aperitivo, first broadcast on the 14th of November 2013 on Monocle 24. Aperitivo, brought to you by the Glenlivet. Hello from Midori House in London and welcome to Aperitivo, coming to you live from Studio One and from just down the road at the Monocle Cafe. I'm Tom Edwards. On today's programme, from Cairo and Tehran to Geneva and an airport security queue somewhere near you. We'll review the day's top stories with Shashank Joshi and John Owen. Then we head to the French capital, where the world's largest photo fair, Harry Photo, opens today. You see the Grand Palais, which is an amazing, huge space, and there's 136 galleries exhibiting there, plus a private collector, plus Martin Parr's collection of uh, photo books. And we're at the Monocle Cafe to discuss the early life of Gandhi with the author Ramachandra Guha. All that, plus music, and we'll look ahead to the rest of the day here on Monocle 24 on Aperitivo with me, Tom Edwards. Plenty to look forward to then on today's programme. Before we get started, uh, let's catch up with the news. Here's a full bulletin brought to you today by Jonathan Wheatley. Officials in the Philippine city of Tacloban have begun burying some of the victims of last week's typhoon Haiyan in mass graves. The city was devastated by one of the most powerful storms ever recorded. The official death toll now stands at over 2,300, but the United Nations estimates 11 million people have been affected by the storm, with 673,000 displaced. While the United Nations humanitarian chief, Valerie Amos, says the aid agencies have been struggling to cope. I completely understand the frustration. Uh, We should have been able to do better. I recognise the challenges uh, that we face. I recognise the reasons that we have been so slow. Uh, But I understand and uh, know that it has not been good enough. Uh, People need food, they need water, they need the basic necessities of life to survive. We need to do more to support people who want to support and help themselves. A French priest has been kidnapped in northern Cameroon and checks are underway to establish the circumstances and the identity of the kidnappers. France's foreign ministry has just confirmed. Georges van der Busch was seized during the night in the region of Koza, some 18 miles from the Nigerian border, an area with a high risk of kidnappings. Van der Busch had been a priest in the Paris suburb of Sioux until he left for Cameroon in 2011. Staying in Africa, and a 40-foot container of ivory was seized late in the afternoon at the main port of Zanzibar by Tanzanian port security officials. The ivory had been put in bags stuffed with marine remain-like shells, supposedly for export. Officials said it was marked for shipment to the Philippines, from where it would most likely end up in China. In Canada, Toronto's mayor has rejected calls to stand down. Rob Ford was at a city council meeting to hear colleagues say he should step aside while he gets help for his drinking and drug use. He's admitted smoking crack cocaine and regularly being drunk, but says he doesn't have a long-term substance abuse problem. I can assure you I am not an alcoholic. I am not a drug addict. Have I drank? Have I done drugs? Yes, I have. But it's self-inflicted, and I hope, Councillor Mammoliti, I hope that nobody, but nobody, goes through what I have gone through in the last few months. Islamist group Hamas have staged a show of strength in the Gaza Strip today, organising one of its largest ever military parades to mark the first anniversary of an eight-day conflict with Israel. 
Hamas's fortunes have actually gone into reverse following the toppling of its main ally, Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi, who was ousted by the military in July. Since his removal, the Egyptian army has destroyed hundreds of smuggling tunnels into Gaza, causing drastic fuel shortages that have added to the growing gloom in the Palestinian enclave. And finally, here, a groundbreaking ceremony has marked the start of construction for the new U.S. Embassy in London, which is due to open in 2017. After over 200 years in the West End, the embassy is moving from its current building in Grosvenor Square to the Nine Elms area on the other side, the south side of the River Thames. Well, Matthew Barzun is the current U.S. ambassador to the U.K. It's a big change. It's an exciting change. We've had 230-plus years in and around Grosvenor Square, and we're moving our operations across the river to be part of this new rejuvenation happening on this side of the river in London. But, and I think it's worth pointing out, that the um, the plaques and the statues that remain in Grosvenor Square will always remind Americans and Brits of the great moments and the great leaders uh, in our two country and the special relationship we enjoy. And that's the latest news on Monocle 24. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Jonathan. It's another world down there in South London, isn't it? It sure is. People are moving there. Obviously, the Dutch embassy is going to move there as well, you know. It's all happening. Will, where will, will Jonathan Wheatley be relocating? No, I'm going to stay in the centre of things. <laughs> Excellent stuff. <laughs> uh, more news from uh, Jonathan Wheatley, of course, at the bottom of the hour. Right now, it's five past uh, 1800 hours here in London. Uh, you're with Aperitivo on Monocle 24. We'll be right back after this. London, Toronto, Tokyo. Hong Kong, Zurich, London. Londres, Toronto, Tokyo. Essa é a Monaco 24. Hong Kong, Zurich, London. Das ist Monaco 24. Hong Kong, Hong Kong Zurich. Zurich, London, Londres. Isto é Monaco 24. Hong Kong, Zurich, London. Tu vai Monaco, vai se tu From London, 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 cara. This is Monaco 24. It is Monocle 24. You're listening to Aperitivo, the time here in London, 1806, uh, 13.06, of course, in New York City. Uh, joining me now in the studio with their take on today's news is uh, Shashank Joshi, research fellow at the London-based think tank Arusi, and uh, John Owen, chairman of the Frontline Club and professor of international journalism at City University uh, London. Uh, welcome back to the programme, both Good of you. Uh, lovely you. to have you here, as always. Um, let's kick off with, uh, well, what seems a, a never-ending saga of Iran and its nuclear program. Uh, today, uh, US Secretary of State John Kerry has told a, a Senate banking committee that fresh sanctions on Iran would be counterproductive and dangerous. Um, Shashang, if I start with you, what do you think about that? I mean, is he right? The sanctions already in place. I mean, are they yes. hurting Iran seriously as it is? These are the most punitive sanctions ever imposed on a nuclear proliferator in history. Kerry's absolutely right. I watched testif- uh, a few experts testify yesterday before the House Um, Foreign Affairs Committee and a friend who was also watching emailed me to say this is like watching a WWF match because I have never seen such woefully ill-informed 
uh, uh, incredibly um, simple-minded, uh, short-sighted legislators. Uh, in all of my experience looking at these things, and your they, point, <laughs> are you surprised? <laughs> my, I mean, they simply don't understand what's been going on in these talks. They are. This isn't some big final deal that's being done. This is a small little bit of sanctions relief that doesn't touch the core banking sanctions, the core oil sanctions. It'll only last for six months, and it buys. About a doubling of Iran's breakout time—that is, the time it takes Iran to break out for enough enriched uranium for one bomb. So this is a good deal that's on the table, with a few tweaks that are needed that will be made in a couple of weeks. But I mean, Congress is going to be the biggest obstacle to this, way more than anything on the Iranian side I've seen. Uh, John, I mean, you made that remark then. I mean, wh- why can't the US? I mean, some of these people maybe they're operating on the right. They're perhaps some members of the GOP. It's not just the right. Well, but there's people who are using it as a stick to beat John Kerry with from whatever, wherever on the political spectrum they're standing. Why can't they see exactly as uh, Shashank says there that this is something that actually delivers? It's not the end game, but it delivers something and something concrete. Well, I think um, it, it speaks to a couple of things. One, uh, President Obama is very weak right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, had had he delivered. Obamacare with a brand new website and people were talking about how successful it was. I mean, if his other moves uh, in the Arab Spring had worked, but he's he's quite weak right now. So I don't think he has um, what Doris Goodwin calls in a new book about Theodore Roosevelt. He has no bully pulpit whatsoever. And secondly, let's uh, enter, enter into this uh, Bibi Netanyahu. Of course. Because um, Israel has been very aggressive, even more aggressive than, than recently, about lobbying against uh, doing something about the sanctions. And don't don't forget, and it gets to your point, it's uh, midterm elections coming up. Absolutely. And uh, we, we, you know, we start talking about uh, the Israeli aid and uh, American aid programs that, that provide a lot of um, campaign support for people running for re-election, and they're powerful. And what's amazing here is... These senators and congressmen and women have received classified briefings on the nature of what went on in Geneva, on the Iranian program, why the administration is doing this. They also received briefings from the Israeli side. And I'm just staggered that they are discounting the briefings from their own agencies, their own intelligence community, and taking seriously these Israeli briefings that are not necessarily wrong. But look, the Israelis weren't at the talks. They don't know what transpired. Some of the details they're putting out on the scale of carrots being offered to Iran are straightforwardly misleading. And this is really dangerous. But why do you think this is happening then, Shashank? It's baffling to me. I mean, you can perhaps understand it. It doesn't mean we should accept it or not be disappointed about it. But why does that happen? It's almost counterintuitive to invest so much faith into, you know, uh, uh, information, intelligence from these other sources and to ignore the briefings of their, their own government. Why are they persisting in uh, sort of willfully in in this display of willful ignorance. I mean, to boil it down, I think it comes down to an overestimation of your own bargaining position and a sense that you don't need diplomacy. You can simply coerce the Iranians into surrendering. Now, on many issues, I think you could. If there was no issue of time here, sanctions would indeed strangle the economy and I think they would capitulate. The problem here is there is a sense of urgency. The Iranians are adding to their nuclear capability. They've slowed it down, but it is still growing. And that's why we need to put time on the clock. We need to buy time. For these senators, they don't see that because they see a backstop to all of this, which is the prospect of military strikes. And it's interesting. It's not just Republicans. Democrats are are also nervous about this. 
Uh, it's intriguing to me. Um, what about what will happen in Iran then? Do you think that if there are fresh sanctions developed, I mean, is that then a, a scapegoat, if you like, for the, the leadership in Iran to sort of, you know, blame the failure of negotiations? They can lay it squarely at that door. Well, we, should be, we should be careful here. It would be very, very bad for diplomacy, of course, just as much as if the Iranians put new facts on the ground before negotiations. But don't forget, if any bills were to move through Congress, number one, it would take time. Number two, they could be subject to veto by the administration. And number three, they wouldn't become enacted on Iran for six or seven months, i.e. after the period in which any interim agreement would have been completed and sorted. So uh, let's not overestimate this, but it really ties the hands. I mean, some of you you may remember back in the 90s, uh, Jeffrey Howe talking about Margaret Thatcher and sending him to negotiate in Europe and said, it's like going to the crease only to find your captain's broken your bats, talking about Europe and the Maastricht Treaty, I think. And I think Obama would would find his State Department officials had had exactly the same thing done to them by Congress if these sanctions were to be imposed. Uh, and what, that's right, Johnny. Like well, I was going to ask is why? Why do you think they collapsed in the first place? What's your sense? Where did they? Where did they come undone at the last minute? Because Kerry mm. obviously did not join this to be part of a failure. Well, I think first of all, they didn't collapse. They just didn't quite yield fruit at the right time in Geneva. Um, the problem was the French demanded we have more stringent conditions on what Iran can do with its so-called heavy water reactor at Arak. Now, Iran wasn't going to be allowed to activate this, but the French didn't want them doing things, tinkering with it in the interim period. So we're getting to very technical territory here. The French concerns were not illegitimate, and I am very confident they can be worked out when the two sides meet again in Geneva on November 20th. So I honestly think these issues will be ironed out, uh, both Arak and the issue of enrichment. Uh, Shashang, I want to ask you just briefly about what do we know or can we speculate? Is it helpful to, in terms of what the attitude is within Iran to these sorts of developments? People in Iran, you're sort of man in the street. Uh, Do they feel a sense of frustration with their their own government? Is it all very counterproductive? It just sort of uh, steals their resolve to resist, you know, what they would perceive as sort of, you know, negative efforts by the uh, Americans. What what do we understand about what what the atmosphere is? Well, first of all, Iranians, like populations everywhere, don't understand the intricacies of nuclear diplomacy. No one knows the difference between 20% enriched uranium and 5%. You know, they will be shaped by what they are told. And that's why it's so important that Khamenei, the supreme leader, has got behind these negotiators and said they aren't compromising, they aren't selling out Iran. And so, in other words, he's setting the stage to say, look, I haven't sold out, this is a good deal. Now, if he feels that these sanctions are simply a way to coerce Iran into complete capitulation, he could turn and the Iranian public will turn as well. But for now, Rouhani has been elected on a mandate of easing economic uh, pressure by easing sanctions, by easing the nuclear dispute. And for now, I think that mandate will carry him through to the next round. And and that's a politically sustainable position, you think? Uh, If we reach an interim deal, if we don't and it collapses and this goes on to next year, more sanctions are imposed, um, then I think we're in serious trouble because we will see Khamenei turn on his own president very, very quickly indeed. I just wanted to add, there's a very good piece in the FT today about the fact that Rouhani may have some running room in terms of these talks, but in terms of other domestic reforms, he's being slapped down. It's a great Um, piece, actually. yeah. Yeah. And, he, you know, this is an interesting thing. We all we were asking, what, will he be Katami, the, the former reformist president, or will he be Rafsanjani, who was a more of a, a liberalizer abroad? And I think the interesting thing is, the more advances he makes on the international stage, the more 
careful he may be domestically to avoid using up political capital because he is a man who has been elected and who has been allowed to be elected to save the regime, not to dismantle it. He is not a Gorbachev. Fascinating stuff. I don't think we've heard the last of this. Uh, let's move on now, though, to Cairo. Uh, Russian and Egyptian officials negotiating uh, significant weapons deals, possibly the most substantial since the Cold War. Uh, as much as $2 billion of arms allegedly sought by Egypt, including uh, MiGs, anti-tank missiles, air defence systems, and so on and so forth. Uh, this follows, of course, uh, the US suspending certain military aid to the country uh, following the ousting of uh, Mohamed Morsi. Um, John, this is intriguing again. Do you think this is another hand that the US has played fairly poorly? Um, you know, it's it's a sort of oldest foe now back in the game. Russia's sphere of influence growing in the region. Uh, another bad play by the Americans or not not so simple as that? Well, I think it's a combination of um, 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 poorly played hand, but also a well-played hand again by the Russians. I mean, the Russians are very adroit right now at exploiting every potential sign of weakness. We've got an interesting cold piece where the Russians just pick their targets. And uh, suddenly we've got the prospect of uh, Khrushchev and Nasser sitting down. I mean, it's, it's really fascinating. They have just moved in. Mm. Every time they see the United States is weak and Obama is weak, he has not followed through. They got caught, trapped with the Morsi um, coup. And um, and they don't quite know how to handle it. Kerry went in to try to steady the side. And then right on his heels in comes the Russians, and uh, offering all the aid that the United States said it's going to take away. And you mentioned uh, Khrushchev and Nasser. Egyptian state television has been broadcasting scenes of uh, Nasser and harking back to his foreign policy. I find this very amusing, as if this is somehow a good thing. Um, That ended so fabulously well for Egypt last time. As I recall, it ended with several major regional wars, Egypt uh, completely humiliated on the Suez Canal, and various other horrible, horrible outcomes. But, you know, for this interim government, this army-led regime, uh, history doesn't matter at all. You can crush your way out of trouble. I've got to say, I read this, though, and I see uh, another ally, like Saudi Arabia a few weeks ago, posturing, trying to show it has options. This is a classic case of a spurned suitor uh, going out and being seen with another woman to try and make you know, her former boyfriend extremely jealous. But I'm afraid it's simply not credible for me. Uh, first of all, look who's funding all of this. Egypt's broke. Who's going to pay for this? Saudi Arabia. And I think one of these papers here mentioned an unnamed Persian Gulf country. Well, look at this spectacle of Saudi Arabia funding the sale of arms from a country, Russia, that is backing the Assad regime that Saudi Arabia is doing its very best to foil. So I find it completely incredible that uh, Saudi Arabia is going to be buying Russian MiGs for the Egyptians. And I also find it incredible that the Russians, uh, the Egyptians will replace 35 years of American hardware with Russian stuff overnight. That isn't how military equipment works. You can't just train pilots who spent decades flying on S-16s, hopping in the cockpit of a MiG-29. So I'm afraid I think the Russians, are they have played a deft hand, but they're posturing. They haven't got staying power, in my opinion. And the Egyptians, just like the Saudis, will come crawling back. Uh, it's interesting, though, John. I just wonder. I mean, it, this sort of notion of Putin and the Russians as this sort of, you know, this Machiavellian figure who sort of works his hand in all these different uh, sort of problem zones, especially around the Middle East. Now, is are we wrong to characterise him in that way? Is he a Machiavellian figure, or do you think he's just a he's a more straightforward kind of political opportunist? Well, I think he's the latter. 
really. I mean, I think he just simply per- he perceives that Obama is weak, and where Obama is weak, the Russians can be strong. And um, yeah. I, I don't know what your no, I analysis agree. I mean, is. Look, look, this, he's an opportunist because he only goes where there's a little bit of space to operate. Russian influence in the Middle East is pretty small, you know, whisper it, but it's a tiny little base in Syria. Uh, but even in Syria, they're not really providing many um, much cash anymore. Maybe a little bit of influence in Egypt. Where else? I mean, this is a far cry from the Cold War, I think. By the way, you you mentioned the Gulf uh, involvement. I thought it was amusing when Egypt gave back to Qatar its $3 billion, saying yeah. we, don't, we don't need it. You know, yes. we don't want it. You you were backing Morsi. You're pro-brotherhood. Right. We don't want your money. Take yes. it back. <laughs> yes. Fascinating stuff. But we're going to take a very, very short break. Uh, you're with Aperitivo with me, Tom Edwards. I'm here with Shashank Joshi from Rusi and John Owen from City University. Uh, when we return in a moment, we'll be looking at the Philippines. The Glenlivet is the original Speyside single malt whiskey, and since 1824, its flavour has defined the region. Join master distiller Alan Winchester to determine the future of this historic distillery. Three new whiskies will set sail around the world, and members of the Guardians of the Glenlivet are invited to decide which will become the Guardians chapter. To discover more and write the next chapter of the legacy, join the Guardians of the Glenlivet.com. The Glenlivet, the single malt that started it all. Enjoy responsibly. In Istanbul, they took to the streets in a battle for green space. In Sao Paulo, they marched in their thousands in a fight for cheaper buses. In Athens, they shouted loud to demand a better-run capital. That's why urbanism matters, why words like density, infrastructure and smart cities need to be dragged out of city hall conclaves and turned into a public debate. And that's why every week Monocle's show, The Urbanist, reports from cities around the world that are getting horribly wrong and deliciously right, visits the mavericks and mayors with a vision further than the edge of their desk, and asks the questions that will shape how we live tomorrow. Who governs the city, who owns the city, who has the right to decide what happens in the city? The bridge becomes an instrument not of moving traffic, but of land development. There needs to be a voice for the people that says, OK, now we need a library, now we need the green park. These things that are greater than the individual interests. Presented by me, Andrew Tuck, The Urbanist premieres every Thursday at 1900 London time. And you can also download it from monocle.com or iTunes. Welcome back to Aperitivo here on Monocle 24. I'm Tom Edwards. Uh, still with me are Shashank Joshi, Research Fellow at RUSI, and John Owen, Chairman of the Frontline Club and Professor of International Journalism uh, at City University London. Uh, we will turn next to the Philippines. Uh, a US aircraft carrier strike group has today begun to distribute food and water to areas uh, devastated by Typhoon Haiyan. Um, John, I just wondered, the US obviously had a a long-standing relationship with the Philippines. They've trained uh, local forces. They're back with this aircraft carrier and all of this assistance. It's obviously rather soon to be sort of cynical about this, given that the tragedy is still unfolding. But do you think there is a a broader sort of strategic advantage for America to provide this kind of assistance here? 
I don't know. I think it's very difficult to jump into that sphere right now. I mean, it's such an enormous humanitarian disaster, and um, the Filipino government has failed so colossally to respond to this thing. I noticed, by the way, in, in Monocle, in your new Monocle, I was thumbing through it, there's an interview with Benino Aquino, and uh, he says, at the end of the day, I believe I'm responsible for everything. <laughs> he says, and he talks to, he talks to, there was a time when there wasn't, you know, there was no point in going into the streets. Today, the apathetic citizenry are making their numbers felt again. Well, he's going to find out in real time, very quickly, how angry people are. No, I don't. I mean, I really don't. I mean, maybe I'm being naive here, an apologist. I don't think so. I just think the United States is very good at getting those big strikers into position. Like, you know, Britain still has its moving in the direction of the mm. Philippines. So, I mean, at this point, it's just how do you get that aid distributed? It seemed to be doing better today, judging by the reports we're hearing. Um, uh, so, I, th- I think that's what that's what the story is about right now. That's where the right progress now. is. Um, it's interesting, though, isn't it? You sort of speculate about the kinds of international assistance uh, forces there are. It seems to be it is only national militaries who can actually effectively tackle these problems immediately. Do you, do you think mm. we'll reach a point when there can be some other sort of body, perhaps, that could uh, be galvanised, be funded sufficiently to deliver, or will we always be in a situation where we're kind of relying on the thund- likes Thunderbirds. <laughs> well, I don't know. Well, I mean, of course, in theory, the United Nations should be doing this. Yeah. And the, the UN, I mean, Valerie Amos, is is there, I think. I think she is at the forefront of this effort. I mean, the problem is how many divisions does the UN have? It has as many as people give it. Um, Mm -hmm. Ideally, what would happen is those with the muscle would hand it over to UN command. Now, the countries involved are not always keen to do this. The United States is not a country known for uh, uh, very, you know, uh, willingly handing over control of its military command to international forces. Um, But really what, you know, the reason militaries do this is because they are the only ones who can shift such enormous volumes of material. And in this particular case, the Philippines is one of the most heavily uh, armed civilian populations in the region. It has very, very poor gun control laws. And I was struck by reading some of these accounts, there is enough fuel in these petrol stations, but the owners are unwilling to open because of fear of looting. And it struck me as quite a legitimate fear of looting. So you need people to guard this. Who can do that? It's only national militaries who have uh, the guns and who have the training in those constabulary functions. So um, I suppose what you should be doing is having, I would expect a UN resolution to have been passed already, perhaps by the Security Council. Um, but but in this case, you would need Filipino permission, which is a very, very sensitive subject, uh, authorising the forces to get in on the ground take over this effort because it's more than clear the Filipinos can't do this but here as in many other places they are afraid of handing over that control because it is humiliating well, that's understandable, of course. But do you think the UN, do they actually do enough? I mean, they're working against all these other mitigating factors. They, they're only as powerful, as you suggest, as they're allowed to be. But even given that, do you think they do enough? Do they, do they push the, the, the envelope of what they could possibly do in these sorts of situations well enough? Well, I, I think you also have to remember that they are stretched across an enormous number of contingencies. You have a refugee situation in Syria that is the very worst in the world. And the United Nations has done enormous amounts to that end. The problem they face is, again, they're only as good as their national government. So in terms of cash, you've had enormous pledges to Syria, and I'm sure you've had pledges to the Philippines, but states don't deliver on these pledges, and there's nothing the United Nations can do to compel them to that end. Um, I would have thought what you need, though, is some kind of standing regional forces, particularly in parts of the world that are so deeply susceptible to these littoral, natural disasters, um, which can react in a more quick way and have experience of these issues, and that knit together various countries. But look, this is why 
countries train together for joint exercises. This stuff will get better the more the US works with countries like Japan, India um, and, and others in moving its ships. I want to pick up on the point you just made. Um, beyond this terrible typhoon, which obviously would have you know, done huge amounts of damage regardless of where you lived or what class you were, the point, again, made by the FT is that 27% of the 95 million people live in horrible, dilapidated, impoverished housing close to floodplains, close to waterways, in places where they should not be living in the first place. They are always going to be the first to die. The Mm -hmm. impoverished Filipinos are going to die in greater numbers than others. This is a continuing problem in these impoverished urban areas. You know, Andrew Tuck's lead-in to this this last segment was about, you know, the design of urban cities. Well, these cities are terrible. And, and of course, more and more of the world's population lives in coastal right. cities, um, right. at more, more today than at any other point in human history. And they make the point, too, it's not only along the coast. Again, many of these poor Filipinos live in the mountains in, again, dilapidated housing, so they're more susceptible to mudslides, earthquakes, and other kinds of natural disasters. It's, a, it's a, certainly a very grave situation. Um, let's move on finally and just talk very briefly about, well, I want to talk a little about air, airport security briefly. We've seen a report uh, put out by the Government Accountability Office in the US uh, talking about screening procedures that the um, Transportation Security Administration have used, in particular a problem uh, called SPOT, a spot of bother, perhaps you might say, screening of passengers by observation technique. Uh, hugely expensive program designed to sort of ferret out illegal activity, suspicious characters. We've seen the the, the idea. Um, $200 million a year. Uh, this report suggests it's as effective or marginally better than chance. Uh, that's a fairly damning indictment. Um, why do you think that... Uh, they're not more capable of delivering, you know, systems that are, that are effective. You know, when tackling these kind of these kind of problems, what, what what could they do better? Well, I mean, one problem, of course, is that people are nervous in airports. Everyone is nervous in airports, and therefore, the level of background noise uh, from which you're trying to screen out the nervous terrorists from all the other nervous flyers is quite high. Um, having said that, I think this is the far from the last we're going to see of behavioural observation techniques, because this is a human way of doing it. But the rise of so-called big data, that is the ability to capture people on video, capture their noises, perhaps even capture their environmental sweat levels or something, who knows, and then crunch all of this uh, using very fast computers is only going up. And I think that it's this sort of thing that is here to stay. I also like to know whether there is a slight correlation between those perceived as exhibiting nervous behavior and what they happen to be in terms of their ethnic <laughs> makeup. I, I, I imagine there is a straight uh, correlation. So. Well, I mean, you would hope that this there was there was there's been the one good thing is that they have collected data on this at least, which has enabled them to show this is no better than chance. So the data should also show uh, are they also picking up on all the nervous brown people yeah, uh, or all the nervous people of <laughs> well, all, eth- all all ethnicities. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, those are the insights of uh, Shashank Joshi and uh, John Owen. Thank you both uh, very much indeed for joining me here at Midori House today. London, New York, Tokyo. This is Monocle 24. London, New York, Tokyo. Tuvai Monocle 24. Londres, Nova York, Tokyo. London, New York, Tokyo. London, New York, Tokyo, Monocle 24. London, New York, Tokyo. This is Monocle 24.
Plenty still to come in the second half of today's aperitivo. We'll be heading to the Monocle Cafe to pass through the early life of Gandhi. And we'll preview, of course, what's coming up on today's Globalist Asia and Monocle Daily shows a little later on. Before we get started on all that, though, let's hear from Jonathan Wheatley, who's here with the World News Headlines. Tom, thanks very much. Officials in the Philippine city of Tacloban have begun burying some of the victims of last week's typhoon Haiyan in mass graves. The official death toll now stands at over 2,300, but the United Nations estimates 11 million people have been affected by the storm, with 673,000 displaced. A French priest has been kidnapped in northern Cameroon and checks are underway to establish the circumstances and the identity of the kidnappers. Georges van der Busch was seized during the night in the region of Koza, some 18 miles from the Nigerian border. Staying in Africa, and a 40-foot container of ivory was seized late in the afternoon at the main port of Zanzibar by Tanzanian port security officials. The ivory had been put in bags stuffed with marine remain-like shells, supposedly for export. And the Islamist group Hamas has staged a show of strength in the Gaza Strip today, organising one of its largest ever military parades to mark the first anniversary of an eight-day conflict with Israel. Hamas's fortunes have gone into reverse following the toppling of its main ally, Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi, who was ousted by the military in July. And for the moment, that's the latest news from Monocle 24. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Jonathan. Uh, more news, of course, from Jonathan Wheatley at the top of the next hour. Are you with Aperitivo here on Monocle 24? It's uh, 21.32 exactly in Moscow, uh, 18.32 here in London. Uh, time now to head to the Monocle Cafe on Chiltern Street, just round the corner. Uh, today we're speaking to one of India's most prominent historians and intellectuals whose new book chronicles the life of the country's most famous son. This account of the life of Mohandas Gandhi takes us to chapters previously unwritten, specifically his life as a young lawyer in South Africa, before the activism against British rule in India, for which he gained both notoriety at home and respect around the world. The book is Gandhi Before India, and its author is Ramachandra Guha, who is waiting for us now alongside Monocle's Thomas Lewis at the Monocle Cafe. Thomas, over to you. Thank you very much indeed, Tom. Yes, you join us here in the Monocle Cafe here in London. And I am joined by Ramachandra Guha, the author of Gandhi Before India. Thank you very much indeed for joining us here here during your trip to London to publicise the book. Um, This will be fresh insight for many people into the world's most famous figures from our, our recent history. Give us a quick summary of the process of writing the book and also why you're focusing on this early stage of Gandhi's life? Well, um, my book deals with Gandhi's years in Gujarat where he was born and then his time as a law student in London and most extensively with the two decades he spent as a community activist in South Africa. And Gandhi was 45 when he returned to India in 1915 and it's the years after his return that are best known when he led the freedom struggle that led to the dismantling of the Raj, the Salt March and of course uh, the tragedy of partition with Gandhi caught in the middle of it and so on. But these early years were formative and uh, I decided that they deserved the book in themselves because firstly they're more than half uh, his lifespan and secondly they're spent in South Africa which is a very interesting country undergoing a major transition of its own with the Boer War and the creation of the Union of South Africa. And most of all, this period in the diaspora is when Gandhi really develops his political and social ideas. Why would you say that there's so little, why there's so little written about the early Gandhi and the experiences of whom really did inform what he later became so famous and so renowned for? 
Well, people have taken a kind of teleological approach that South Africa was merely preparation for his grand and great and controversial work in India. But he was there so long, it deserves close attention in itself. And what was particularly striking was the circle of friends around him who are forgotten. Gandhi's friends and associates in India, such as Jawaharlal Nehru, India's first Prime Minister, Subhash Chandra Bose, the great Bengali freedom fighter, and also Gandhi's rivals. This context is well known, Gandhi's Indian context and Gandhi's imperial context. But his most intimate friendships were in London and South Africa, often with English people. In Johannesburg, in the early part of the 20th century, Gandhi and his wife Kasturba shared a home with an English couple, Henry, who was Jewish, married to Millie, who was Christian. And they were really his closest and most intimate friends. And they argued and debated about religion, about philosophy, about politics, about economics. Gandhi was a traditional Hindu patriarch, and Millie Pollack made him you know, more open to understanding the suppression of women. Pollack was a wonderfully skilled writer who helped Gandhi edit his journal, propagandize his view. And it's this circle of friends in South Africa, English and Indian friends, often Indian friends forgotten. For example, there was a Tamil radical called Tambi Naidu, whose uh, grandchildren were then later active in the anti-apartheid struggle. And one of them was in fact in Robben Island with Nelson Mandela. And this Indian activists in South Africa also helped shape Gandhi, helped influence him, helped nurture him, helped provide him confidence that he could be a major leader. And how did you come across those papers that sound as if they were unseen until the moment you, you came across them? Well, you see, Gandhi himself wrote a great deal. And most scholars take the easy way out. They just use the collected works, which are also available at the click of a mouse. But I was more interested in what people were saying about Gandhi, letters to him, letters about him, newspaper reports about his activities, British intelligence reports. And these were scattered in archives in, in Delhi, in Ahmedabad, in London, in Oxford, in Pretoria, in Johannesburg. And even I found a great cache of Gandhi papers in Haifa in Israel, where one of his Jewish friends in South Africa had left these papers to his family, who then became Zionist. And I was able to turn up all these fascinating unpublished letters and reflections and assessments, always providing fresh insights on the Mahatma before he became the Mahatma. And that was really what I have tried to do in this book. What surprised you most that you felt illuminated Gandhi's character in a way that maybe hadn't been discussed before and actually, with that knowledge, influences how we know the later Gandhi, maybe in a different way? Well, it's hard for me to single out one particular surprise. But since you ask, one of the surprises was to discover the depth of the white hostility to, to Gandhi. I found in Gandhi's ashram in Ahmedabad, in a neglected cupboard, 12 volumes of news clippings containing reports in the white press about Gandhi. You know, Gandhi is in Durban as a lawyer of 25 and 26, trying to get some elementary rights for the Indians and allow them freedom to trade, to live where they want, not to pay punitive taxes. And his attempts to organize the Indians met with great hostility from the white press. And they're incredibly vicious, vituperative reports and assessments about Gandhi, even some satirical poems written about him in South African newspapers when he's 25 and 26. And there's a vivid account of a mob attack on Gandhi, a white mob attack on Gandhi in Durban in 1897, where he was almost lynched and he was saved by the white constable, head constable of police. Uh, and this gives you a sense of really what a racist society South Africa was, the kind of hurdles Gandhi had to face, and also the physical courage he had to develop as a young man of 26 and 27 
This was in many ways the greatest surprise. What I've tried to show is uh, how the fundamental aspects of his worldview were shaped in the diaspora. And also his failures. His failures as a husband and a father. One of the striking, in a sense, discoveries or features of what I've tried to do in, in my book is to examine in detail his relationship with his wife, which was problematic, and his relationship with his eldest son, which was really uh, quite tragic because Gandhi was a, uh, was a great leader, an inspirational figure, but he was a father who had unrealistic expectations of his children. When his eldest son, Harilal, was becoming an adult, Gandhi insisted that he join the struggle, that he joined it, go to jail, that he abandon his studies, that he leave his wife uh, to whom he was deeply devoted. And the mm. young son was broken as a result. So in a sense, you also get a, a sense of Gandhi's failure. Uh, often those around you suffer the consequences of your obsession and your passion and your engagement. Some of the reviews have pointed this out, that it brings out his humanity, including his frailty. You know, and I think it's really trying to flesh out all the different dimensions of this complex and remarkable human being. And just finally, before we leave, uh, you this is the first part of a two-part biography series of Gandhi. Give us a sense of when we can expect the next installment. Well, uh, well I can't say because a book of this, uh, books of this scale take several years to write. But in some ways, I would like to see this as the first of a trilogy. This is the South African Gandhi. My next book will focus on Gandhi's time in India from 1915 till he dies in 1948. So that will be the Indian Gandhi. And I hope one day to write a sequel to this two-volume biography, which will take the form of examining Gandhi's worldwide influence on, you know, Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement, the Dalai Lama, on Aung San Suu Kyi, on the South African freedom struggle. So I see really this project as in three parts. Ramachandra Guha, author of Gandhi Before India, thank you ever so much for joining us here in the Monocle Cafe, live on Aperitivo. That's all from us here. Back to you in the studio. Thank you very much, Thomas. Fascinating indeed. I shall look forward to reading not only this, but the uh, the future instalments as well. Uh, up next on Aperitivo, we'll be talking photography in Paris. Stay tuned to find out more on this episode of Aperitivo. The rugged and romantic Scottish Highlands are not the Glenlivet's only inspiration. Since 1824, this single malt has combined unique flavours to create one of the world's most awarded whiskies. The Guardian's chapter is their next limited edition whisky, with a taste that will be decided by the Glenlivet's own community of enthusiasts from around the world. To discover more and write the next chapter of the legacy, join the Guardians at theglenlivet.com. The Glenlivet, the single malt that started it all. Enjoy responsibly. The Arctic has inspired artists for centuries with tales of adventure and exploration. Monocle Films made its own expedition to Denmark to see the Louisiana Museum's Arctic exhibition to seek out the past and the present of this mythic place. As nations are vying for the north, negotiating trade routes and expanding development, and the Arctic landscape threatens to disappear, this exhibition takes a visionary stance that activates dialogue on every level, from science to pop culture. Arctic Inspiration, premiering in the film section on monocle.com.
You're listening to Aperitivo with me, Tom Edwards. We continue the show in the French capital, where the world's largest photo fair, Paris Photo, opens today. For the 17th edition of the event, the Grand Palais has attracted over 130 galleries from all around the world. But the man who everyone is talking about is Harold Falkenberg, a private collector from Hamburg who owns some of the most famous and controversial pieces of contemporary art in the world. Falkenberg's collection is featured at Paris Photo this year, a move some have perceived as a statement on conceptual art. We sent our own Daphne Denis to the private view of the fair. She caught up with Phil Hahn and Tom Burgess-Watson on today's Midori House to tell them all about it. It's a huge event. I don't know if you see the Grand Palais, which is an amazing, huge space, and there's 136 galleries uh, exhibiting there, plus a private collector plus Martin Parr's collection of uh, photo books. So it's absolutely gigantic and beautiful and very much on the same level as uh, La FIAC in Paris or if in London and Hong Kong. And Daphne, earlier this year we saw Paris Photo decamp and head over to Los Angeles. They held their first American fair at uh, Paramount Studios, drawing in quite a, a few fair number of visitors. Is this a growing sign of the importance of Paris Photo on the international stage? Absolutely, yes. I think uh, going to L.A. was an incredibly good move for Paris Photo because we have more and more international galleries that are coming to show up. We have, uh, for example, a Mexican gallery that's there, a Russian gallery also this year. I think it's really, really helped enhance their importance on the international stage, although it's already the world's largest photo fair. And Daphne, I'm assuming all these uh, exciting exhibitions and so on uh, has meant a fair share of vernissage and uh, <laughs> cocktail parties and everything else. Uh, tell us a little bit about who you've been rubbing shoulders with there at, at Paris Photo. Well, I've actually I've met quite a few people. I've got, I'm meeting the director of the fair today. But yesterday I met a very important man uh, that you were mentioning just now, Harold Falkenberg, who's an incredible collector, 70 years old, and he just loves messy art. He loves art that makes people uneasy. He he actually says that he doesn't really believe in culture, and I actually I can make you uh, listen to what he told me uh, yesterday about what he thinks of culture. See, the line is that the artists collect don't understand art as a part of the culture, but art as pointed against culture. They understand art as a counterculture. So you see, if art becomes old and is accepted everywhere, then it is culture. Uh, they want to uh, work uh, at a stage where art is not yet culturized. So you can hear that kind of his take. One of the pieces that he's exhibiting is a, a photo by an artist called Phil Collins, not to be confused with the singer, by the way, <laughs> um, of, a, of Britney Spears scribbled all over with sort of a fake moustache. Um, so it's, it's not pretty art, but it's, it's stuff that obviously makes you, makes you wonder and think about the concept of art. So it's, it was really interesting to uh, have a chat with him about, you know, what he considers, how he, how he chooses photography. We were wondering who that, that picture yeah, was. I we couldn't recognize uh, that as Britney Spears. It doesn't look like Britney Spears, no. But with all the scribbling, uh, I'm not really surprised that we no. couldn't tell who that was. Uh, now, Daphne, uh, there's some other interesting pieces within the Falkenberg collection. There's an interesting installation at the moment by uh, a man named Jonathan Messer as well. So uh, a really eclectic mix of pieces, aren't there? Absolutely. I mean, he's, he, he, he has made some exceptions. He's got some uh, photographs by Walker Evans, for instance, uh, who's obviously one of the most iconic photographers in America, and uh, Lee Friedlander, for instance. But despite the fact that he's obviously a very wealthy man and a very 
an, an odd collector. He's got a very controversial and sort of anti-collector stance on art. And uh, I think we can listen to him speak about the collectors uh, again and what he thinks of them. We see before us a group monopolizing the art for themselves, but they only need it to make themselves more valuable. They don't care for art at all. As a collector, I can say for myself, yeah, it's not so bad. Also, my works have double or triple or quadruple of the price as before, so they let them do. But I can't buy uh, these works anymore, or I'm, or I'm not willing to buy them at that price. So I think maybe this exhibition or this invitation is a little like a screw putting steam out of the engine, yes? So it's obviously really interesting to hear Falkenberg talk about this stance on art and collecting in a fair that's obviously for art collectors. I mean, it's a fair where obviously the photographs are shown to be sold. So it's interesting to look at the way that Paris Photo is going in that direction with a man that's so radical in his thinking about photography. Daphne, uh, what are your sort of personal favourite moments so far? And what are you perhaps looking forward to most uh, there at Paris Photo before you come back to us in London? I am very much looking forward to talk about, obviously, the Photo Booker's Awards at Avcher, which is one of the biggest events of my photo. I'm also just looking forward to meeting more um, more gallery owners and talking to more people. They've got a really interesting concept of showing three new galleries and talk about their recent acquisitions and the way, the way that they collect, the way that they're sort of thinking about photography. And I spoke yesterday with uh, two Brazilian gallery owners who are focused on urbanism in Brazil. And it was just fascinating to see how they commission work as well as just collect photography that's already been done. So it's just really interesting to see new ways to think about photography as a, as a medium. That was Daphne Adeni in conversation with uh, Phil Hahn and Tom Burgess-Watson on today's Midori House. So remember, you can listen to that and all our other great shows uh, you may have missed. Uh, log on to monocle.com. You can uh, delve into our archive right there. Uh, that got me thinking of uh, Paris, maybe Paris by night, and it's inspired me with a little bit of a musical selection, which I'm going to play for you when we come back after this. London, New York, Tokyo. This is Monocle 24. London, New York, Tokyo. Londres, Nova York, Tokyo. London, New York, Tokyo. Londonist New Yorkist Tokyo. Se on monokul 24. London, New York, Tokyo. Monokul 24. This is Monocle 24. It is time for me to play you a little music now, inspired by France. We were hearing from Daphne Denis in Paris. Uh, I want to play you some great French music. This is from uh, M83. It's uh, Midnight City. That was Midnight City by M83, music from France. You're listening to Aperitivo here on Monocle 24. Uh, We're fast approaching the end of today's programme. Before we go, 
Let's remind you what's coming up on some of tonight's programmes. I'm joined now here in Studio One by Alad John, who's producing The Globalist Asia, and also Barbara Feeney, who's behind the Monocle Daily. Uh, welcome to you both. Hi, Tom. Hello, Tom. How's the show been? It's been, it's been a pleasure, and I hope a joy for our listeners to listen to. Uh, Alad, let's start with you. What do you have for me on your programme this evening? Well, not just you, Tom. For all our lucky listeners. For everyone who's tuning in, we're going to be dissecting the potential, not collapse, but the potential momentary unravelling, let's say, of Abenomics. This is the economic plan mm. put forward by Shinzo Abe when he was elected in December. Uh, in a nutshell, it's a three-pronged approach to cutting back deflation, actually getting inflation, but in tandem with that, rising wages as well. Uh, unfortunately for him, the third quarter results show that inflation is actually coming back, and this has been helped from massive uh, effectively quantitative easing, but he's pumping money into the economy, unlike any other government that has, has been trying to deal with uh, the, the recession that came with the economic collapse. Uh, unfortunately for him, though, wages aren't rising in tandem with inflation. So the, the third quarter results are showing that growth has, in fact, been quite weak. We've speaking to a couple of people about this. Fiona Wilson, our Tokyo bureau chief, she's there going to give us the, the view from the ground. And also an economist from the Economist Intelligence Unit, Feng Xiu, who breaks down why they wanted to approach it in the way they did and why it's momentarily failing. It's interesting, isn't it, of course, because a lot of these problems with growth or the lack of it in Japan uh, date back much further than just the, the financial crisis. This has not been a, a, you know, a few years in the making. This has been kind of generational, and it seemed as if some of the things Abe was doing uh, were working, but perhaps not. Well, that's correct. The deflation has been something that Japan has been tackling for over a couple of decades, in fact. So it, in some senses, it's perhaps trite to compare it to the, to the measures taken by other governments who are dealing with the recessions, but... It's quite a stark contrast to the approach that, say, the UK government or the American government or anywhere in the Eurozone is taking to deal with the recession, where they're going guns blazing with austerity, cutting public spending, whereas in Japan... They're, they're going all guns blazing for let's chuck money into the mm. economy and see what happens. Well, not just a comparison with elsewhere in the world, but of course a comparison with his predecessors. And this is one of the reasons why yeah. they coined the sort of Arbenomics thing. It was, it was in such stark contrast to the sort of established way of doing things. Uh, fascinating to run the rule over that. Uh, what, what else have you got on your show, Alan, briefly? Uh, any more, yeah, any more really little nuggets story. in there? Yeah, a lovely little cultural hit maybe for you. Uh, so let's go back a few years. 2006 saw the demolition of what was the biggest hotel in the world. I'm not sure if it was the biggest then, but was one of the biggest at least. 3,000 rooms, so each housing at least two people. It's a big old hotel in the centre of Russia, dwarving the Kremlin, a huge monument on the on the Moscow skyline. They, dem they demolished it, and um, Putin in the last few years has given the mayor of Moscow his blessing to create a, a park, something for the Moscow... Moscovites, sorry. Moscovites? Moscovites? Moscovites. Moscovites, to, to be proud of. A uh, New York design firm, uh, Diller, Scofidio and Renfro have won the contract to design it. So we're speaking to one of the architects from that design firm to see what they got installed for, for the Moscow. Lovely stuff, Alad. I'm looking forward to that already. Uh, Barbara, what about the Daily? Can it rival that? It can indeed, Tom. So often we start in the US and we are back there tonight because Janet Yellen was um, in front of the banking committee, the US Senate banking committee today, answering questions. And she was saying that she would sort of follow what Ben Bernanke has been doing and, you know, support this kind of stimulus measures that are in place at the moment. A steady hand on the tiller, she's promising to be. We'll yeah. see whether people are convinced by that. 
that's that's what we're going to discuss. Intriguing. Intriguing. What, what else have you got? What else have you got in your box of tricks? Staying in North America, but going right across the West Coast to Washington State because a, control, a controversial vote was rejected by kind of union representatives in Boeing. And you know, here at Monocle, we do love aviation stories. Mm. So this, but is, maybe not bad news stories, though, well, Barbara. Well, this is quite historical because you know, uh, Boeing. They've been for ninety-seven years. They've had a presence in Washington State, and this vote tonight, today, could mean that the production of some of their parts could be they could be moving to Japan to other states. So. Quite historical. Time. Alarming times. It's interesting, though. I was speaking to our transport editor, uh, Tristan McAllister, who may be updating us with the latest, I imagine, uh, a few days ago. And he was suggesting that, in fact, there's basically too much at stake for both parties and that while there'll be some posturing and a bit of grandstanding, they may even come close. They may even go on strike. They'll ultimately have to come back together because each side has too much to lose. Could be, could be the case. Who knows? I'm sure he'll. We're going to find out more in. from Tristan a little later. Lovely stuff, and I'm sure there's some other little surprises. We're also along the way going as well. to have our advertising update, and one of the things we're going to be discussing is Apple Apple's new iPad Air ad. And mm. if we have time, we might be able to hear a clip. I think we can have a very quick clip. Yeah. It's an extremely simple tool, but also extremely powerful. It can be used to start a poem or finish a symphony. Has transformed the way we work, learn, create, share. Transformative, creative. It sounds like the Monocle Daily. That's all coming up. Uh, Barbara Feeney's <laughs> stewarding now. And uh, that was the chuckling voice of Alad John, who's behind tonight's Globalist Asia. That's the 20 hundred hours, the daily at 2200. My thanks to both of them. My thanks to you for tuning in to Aperitivo. Uh, my special guests today were Shashank Joshi from Rusi and John Owen from City University, London. Uh, today's show was produced by Daniel Jacopelli, researched by Alexa Fermnich, Matt Alagaya and Rosie Sells. And our studio manager was Chris Chilvers. Uh, remember, you can tune in at the same time tomorrow for more from Aperitivo. I'll be back at 1800 hours at London time. Hopefully, you'll be joining us then. But for now, it's goodbye. Why this watch? This watch is a witness. A witness to words that moved nations. It's dead men faster, further. It's been worn by luminaries, visionaries, champions. It doesn't just tell time. It tells history. Rolex.